Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hey, good morning, Scott Luton right here with you on this week in business history. Welcome to today's show. We've got a wonderful episode teed up. We've already had a blast uh, on the pre-show. We should have been recording that, uh, but we've got a great guest from an outstanding organization amongst others that are really making their mark. So stay tuned for a highly informative and intriguing conversation. Hey, quick programming note. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to find us wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, find us across social media, including YouTube. And hey, we love hearing from our listeners. So we welcome your feedback. So with no further ado, I want to introduce and bring in our featured guest here today. She's a lawyer, teacher, coach, author, empowerment, self-defense instructor. We'll find out a lot more about that. Our guest is a regular opinion columnist for the Pasadena Weekly, the Huffington Post, and other publications. She served as UN Press Corps jour uh, credential journalist and delegate for big-time United Nations conferences such as the Women's Conference in Beijing and the Conference Against Racism in South Africa. Our multifaceted guest has written plays, books, documentaries, so much more, and has served in a wide variety of leadership and board level roles for many organizations. Chief amongst them is the National Women's History Alliance, where we met. And at, it is at NWHA where she's found a home for her lifelong study and passion and love of women's history. So no further ado, let's welcome in Ellen Snortland. Ellen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be on a history program. <laughs> it's, it's like, hey, you know what? Us history nerds need to hang together. <laughs> you know what? We were uh, we were separated earlier. I feel like we're so very a lot of kindred spirits and camaraderie absolutely. here already. Absolutely. It's important for history nerds to be well represented in, in any population. And I can't wait to hear your POV here today. So, all right, so before we get to the heavy lifting and get to a lot of the topics we're gonna to talk about, let's get to know Ellen better. So tell us, Ellen, if you would, where'd you grow up and give us a couple anecdotes from your upbringing. Well, I grew up in South Dakota, spent my summers in North Dakota where my parents came from. And um, I was basically raised as a Norwegian American because the, a lot of the little towns in North Dakota, especially, had communities that were based on wherever they came from when they homesteaded the prairies up there. And um, so uh, they tend to all kind of clump together and the Norwegians go to the Nor Norwegian town and the German Russians go to the German Russian town, et cetera, et cetera. So I didn't think there was anything peculiar about being a Nor Norwegian American until I moved to California. And uh, I I'm going, what accent? What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, um, and all the jokes in uh, a Norwegian-American community are dumb blonde jokes, except some of the dumb blondes are men because we're all blonde. So <laughs> <laughs> so from a culture standpoint, Norwegian-American home from either you know traditions or food or what's one thing that, that when you look back was, was special about that upbringing? Well, we ate a lot of Norwegian food, especially around holidays. The Norwegian foods that we ate were traditionally peasant foods, like the Norwegian relatives I still have in Norway wouldn't eat them <laughs> to save their life because, wow. you know, most, most kind of comfort foods from any country generally tend to be poor people's food. Mm. Uh, so in Norway, it would be lutefisk which is a cod that's soaked in lye and dried so that Vikings could take dried fish with them when they came to conquer the world. And uh, so it's, it's a wretched dish. Mm. I happen to like it because I grew up on it, but it's really just a butter delivery system. 
Um, <laughs> well, it's kind of like sushi for me. It's a wasabi <laughs> delivery system. I love wasabi. I put it on oh, everything. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, going, going to your point, you know, goodness, uh, so thankful for peasant food, as you put it, because that, you know, almost regardless of what country, that's given us some of our favorite, you know, global culinary delights, right? It come, comes from all walks of life. I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we have in common. And the Norwegians have a tortilla like uh, item, which is called lefsa, and it's a, a potato based, it's really a tortilla. But, you know, all, all, um, Poor people have something to wipe up food with because you don't waste the gravy on the plate. You right. wipe it up with something, or you know, just like it's all. It all makes sense. It's a common sense food. I love it. All right, so we're gonna talk about uh, your professional journey in a moment. But what what took you to California? Ooh. <laughs> when I was in high school, I fell head over heels in love with the football coach slash drama coach. It was a tiny little high school and we were madly in love. I was underage and we never did anything that was even remotely sexual. He was completely a gentleman, but we had this, oh my God, I loved him and he loved me. And, but rumors started that uh, we were being sexual and we weren't, he got fired. So he, he moved to California and got into Stanford in the acting program there. And then he went to a repertory theater company in mid-California called uh, Santa Maria. And so I auditioned over the phone. I got in and I got in as a 16 year old and um, we, he met my bus and we immediately saw that we despised each other. (laughs) But it got me to California. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> love it. Love it. So would, you know, we're going to touch on some things you've been up to, but clearly from a creative side of that side of your brain, whichever, I forget if it's right or left, but you know, from creating documentaries and of course, writing books and, and, and acting is that was he part of the, your initial, how you found your passion for that stuff. He said he was a, he was a drama teacher too. Yeah. Well, I was, it's hard to tell this now, but I was painfully shy. Mm. But I knew I wanted to have somewhat of a public life. I'm, I'm, I'm an ambivert. I'm both introverted and extroverted. If I had my druthers, I'd be reading all day long and tell you to leave me alone. <laughs> and I also love to write because it's a, you know, it's a isolating kind of uh, activity. We had a really interesting relationship because this was such a, high, a small high school. He decided he would teach a semester on Dostoevsky. And so I was his only student in that class. And we bonded over crime and punishment. <laughs> wow. You don't hear that very often. No, no. And then, <laughs> then he decided he was going to direct uh, Murder in the Cathedral, which is about Thomas a Beckett. And uh, uh, I said, there are no roles for women. And except the chorus, which, you know, all the great parts were for men, which was typical in high school uh, theater. And um, so I was the single chorus person because he wanted a, a, a chorus of one person and I was that. And that was the beginning of me playing leads in a lot of plays, which <clears throat> it's not accidentally called a lead. It's a lead because it is a leadership position. Mm taking it, taking, you know, responsibility for how the play goes and learning your lines and showing up on time and all that stuff, you know, so it really taught me leadership in a way that I hadn't had the opportunity for, but, um, so he really, he, he tickled both the left side and right side of my brain because (laughs) I also produced that play and I realized I loved being the boss <laughs> and I loved producing and there weren't many women who were producing at that time either so it was really the kernels of a large portion of my life so during that time period when you were there in the moment were you conscious of the lack of, of uh, female representation both on the acting side on the, in the big roles lead roles and the production side or is it something that you kind of reflected back on and it dawned on you were you, were you really, was it were you there did it smack you in the face when you were there in the moment? Yes and no. I mean, not like it does now. It was kind of the way things were. Mm. Nobody questioned it. 
and I started to have hints of it, but it mostly came up with, hey, that's not fair. They get all the good parts. It's like, hey. (laughs) But my activism came, oh gosh, maybe five years later because I started an all-woman theater company in um, Santa Barbara, California, because we were all really ticked off because we didn't get to direct, we didn't get to design, we didn't get to do any of that stuff. And had I known about Title IX at that time, I would have brought a Title IX lawsuit because we didn't get the same education as the boys in the departments got. And what really ticks me off looking back on it is that the heads of these theater companies had to go raid uh, the boys the boys in orchestra or the boys in chorus or whatever just to get enough boys to be in the theater production and meanwhile the theater department is full of girls who want to do all sorts of stuff and we weren't allowed so <laughs> wow so forming that all female production company in Santa Barbara that allowed all of the folks in that troupe or that that organization to fill whatever role that they their heart desired, right? Exactly, and everybody is like this. It doesn't matter what your gender is. You learn by doing. You learn by putting your butt on the line and producing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, so, you know, you, you learn to be a leader by putting your money where your mouth is. And so we learned a lot. Mm, love that. Uh, and, and you know, an hour never does justice for these types of conversations. We'll have to have you back and, and dive deeper in some of the nooks and crannies as it were of of your journey let's talk about i can only imagine what you learned and the impact um that just what you've shared has already had on your journey but when you when you look back on on other uh things you led or or projects that you managed or what have you what other role key role comes to mind that really helped shape who you are and, and and your worldview well being in southern california and going for an acting career I realized pretty soon on that I was going to have to be responsible for creating projects so I could participate in them. So for instance, I'd always wanted to play Nora in A Doll's House, which is a Norwegian play. And I I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to produce it. <laughs> so I got a hold of Ted Danson and I asked him to play my husband and he said yes. and. You know, it's really been my unwillingness to sit around waiting for somebody to do something for me. It's like, you know what? And the other key thing is that I surprised, uh, I I surprised, well, I did surprise a lot of people, but (laughs) I I survived a killer flood in South Dakota in 1972. Mm. And I was only 19 and the cliches are so true. We came close to drowning. I saved both my parents from drowning and I was only 19 and I saw my life flash before my eyes. And it was like one of those um, gifts that it could have really messed me up, but actually inspired me because I really said, wait a second, life is not a rehearsal and it could be gone like that. Out of 27 people in my neighborhood, only seven people survived, three of which were my parents and I. Wow. And uh, we were only alive because I had I was a Red Cross uh, certified um, lifeguard. And, you know, so, you know, not a lot of 19-year-olds get that opportunity to live through something and go, okay, I'm going to live my life a lot differently from now on. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Um, what city? Uh, that was North Dakota, right? That was South Dakota. Rapid City, South Dakota. It was okay. a killer flood. It killed a lot of people. So it had. It, it, it sounds like what I heard some of what you say there or allude to is is your your how important it was not to take one single day for granted. And did you from that point forward was it uh, were you a lot more intentional in terms of you know how you you know celebrated the small stuff and and, and enjoyed the small stuff as it were. Yeah, and double dog daring myself to take something on that ordinarily I wouldn't have. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, mm. who was I to start a theater company in Los Angeles? And who was I to call Ted Danson up and say, would you play my husband in a Norwegian play? I mean, it. you know, the word encourage is very important. Encouraging somebody, 
encouraging yourself because it's so easy to chicken out and to um, say I'm not important enough or I'm not this enough or whatever. You know what? This is it. Be here now. I love that. And, and, and I, I completely agree with you. you. You never know what word or phrase or sentence or conversation you might be having or you might be sharing that gives someone else that encouragement to keep moving on. And, and that's some of what I'm hearing uh, you. And, and I love I love how uh, your zest for life and, and, and how embolden you to chase whatever passion you had and, and, and address and even target the injustices that, that clearly were, were rampant and still, unfortunately, to this day are still yeah, everywhere. Yeah. All right. So before we we uh, this is so good. Ellen, I've, I've got about 18 pages of notes already oh. <laughs> before, before we get to your Eureka moment. Any other key positions? I know it's so tough to boil it down. It was so tough to to come up with a credible introduction introduction for you, given everything you've done. But what other position comes to mind that really shaped how you view the world? Oh my goodness! Um, well, one of the things that I learned early on was that corporations, um, people who were presidents of things, were just people. You know, I, I'm a, I'm of two worlds. I was raised to be a an executive's wife. I was not raised to be an executive uh, because that was the way my parents were, and that was their world, not mine. And so they didn't quite know how to relate to me in some ways. But on the other hand, they were both going, "Yeah, okay, that doesn't make sense to us, but you go." <laughs> and so, Love that. One of the things I did was I, I am a. A talented baker and I made lots of Norwegian baked items which for people in Southern California was were pretty exotic I mean they're uh, labor-intensive pastries and stuff like that and I brought some into a, a group of people that I was working for with and one of them said oh my god these are amazing do you want me to introduce you to the the food person at Carter Holly Hale which I didn't know what that was uh, turned out they were what's what would the word be for they were basically the clearinghouse for Neiman Marcus and Bloomingdale's and a right. lot of really big big companies and um, I said sure why not <laughs> you know this is after the flood and everything and it's like I've been a yes yes I'll do that person and so I stayed up all night and I made these incredible desserts and I went uh, like to the 40th floor of this skyscraper downtown and I walked in with this beautiful sterling silver tray with all these goodies on it and I walked in and the man saw the tray and a tear came down his face and he said, wow. I haven't seen these since my grandma made them. Mm. Man, <laughs> and, that, I'll tell you. <laughs> Food is just, it's, it's the, it is just that universal language that it just cuts through anything. And, and that's, it's very special, very special connections that can offer. Yeah. So then he picks up the phone and he talks to the purveyor of uh, foods at Neiman Marcus and gets me an appointment like that. And this is a business history podcast. So I had no clue about <laughs> business, none whatsoever. And I sit down with this hoity toity. Uh, buyer at Neiman Marcus and he takes his placemat and he starts writing out an order and I'm like and I hadn't thought about the prices wow I'm not a business person I'm an arts person I'm a <laughs> I'm a creation person and so I agreed to a price that ended up costing me money <laughs> wow yes. but but still you're able to claim you did business with Neiman Marcus and they yeah. wanted wanted your your artisan product right yes yes how cool was that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you know let's talk eureka moments for a minute it's one of our favorite questions to ask folks and, and whether it's you know recent eureka moment or something you've already shared some of your learnings from your earlier aspects of your journey what else can you when you when you think back what else really stands as a as a key lesson learned that maybe changed how you viewed you know business or history or or how you viewed you know your your purpose maybe what what, what comes to mind well, so just to tie up the Neiman Marcus yeah. um, conversation, is the man who cried when he saw my food, that was my Eureka. It's like, mm. oh, these 
these are just simply people with memories and full lives and hearts. And I, I stopped being intimidated by big companies with that. I just went, oh, they're just like I am. Well, <laughs> so that was important. And then also in my career, I, um, I had three callbacks to host the new dating game. Really? Because, uh-huh, because I was really good as, at improv and on my feet, that kind of stuff. And it was like, oh, my word. If this comes through, I could be making six figures starting next week. And it was just very exciting. And it's called the entertainment business, not because it's you know entertaining necessarily, but it's a business. <laughs> <laughs> and I went for my fourth meeting, and the man looks at me and goes, we are so sorry, but the last woman we tried just didn't work out. Wow. And I, I was stunned uh, at a loss for words. And man, if the rest of the business world went off, whether the last guy, man, if the last man had worked out or not, they wouldn't be hiring any men either. You know, <laughs> I was right. like, so I just went, so I represent all women all of a sudden. And I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> I, I signed up to be the best individual I possibly could be. But then the eureka part of that was I do represent until we have equality for women and people of color and everything. We all represent each other, whether we want to or not. So, wow. you know, the last woman we tried just didn't work out. So that that broad screwed up my employment opportunity <laughs> like, well um, i hope i that, didn't even know her <laughs> that experience and you sharing that experience uh since that time I'm, I'm hoping you know we always look for silver linings i mean whether it's a pandemic or whether it's you know when we hear about experiences like you're sharing and you know despite the the disappointment right then and and the disappointment that, that doesn't even do it justice the the foolishness and the short-sightedness and the uh, sexist uh, perspective of, of that conversation you had. I bet how you've used that experience and share with others, you've turned that negative, really negative experience into hopefully a lot of learning learnings for many other. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was a nice guy, mm. you know, and he just didn't understand what nonsense that was to say it out loud to me like I was supposed to go, oh, okay. <laughs> And, and, you know, uh, and he probably wouldn't say that 30 years later because he'd understand how absurd it was. But at the time, the climate, the soup we were swimming in, it was, you know, and I had another experience like that where I was directing for a show called, uh, and again, very few women got to direct, maybe point one point, I don't know. It was a very, very small percentage of women got to direct TV or films. And I got to direct for a Fox show called Totally Hidden Video. Hmm. And I was the crew's favorite director. I was also the cast's favorite director. But uh, somebody in the executive suite took umbrage at me being there. I was the only woman that was behind the camera. And um, he just didn't like me. I'd never even met him. I still haven't ever met him. And so my supervising producer called me in because I wasn't getting scheduled for shoots anymore. And I called him up and I said, hey, what's going on? So he said, you better come in. And so I went in and I wish I'd had a tape recorder. He shuts the door and he says, well, you know, so-and-so does not like you. And I said, I don't even know so-and-so. And he says, yeah, I know. And I said, is there a specific complaint? And he said, yeah, you don't get enough jiggle. And I said, Wow. What, is that? what does that mean? And he said, well, jiggle is when the other directors have downtime in between hidden camera bits, they surreptitiously take shots of women's breasts and women's butts as they walk by without having to get permission because they're not identifying the person. I said, it wouldn't even occur to me to do that. To, first of all, invade somebody's privacy like that. And secondly, I'm into dogs. So if I were going to take surreptitious pictures, it would be of the cute doggies. <laughs> uh, Buko and Bella as proof of that. <laughs> yes, yes. And he said, well, I'm sorry, because you're a really good director. And that broke my heart 
more than anything, I think, because I had found my niche. Generally, when there's trouble for a woman director, it's because the crew doesn't like her. And I'm a real team player. Uh, I was bringing up young female production assistants and, you know, I'm fun. And I made my sets fun. And uh, everybody really appreciated that. But that man, that executive just hated my guts. Wow. I can't imagine. I can't, like you said, you wish you had a tape recorder. Yeah. I can't even, uh, it doesn't even feel like reality when I hear conversations I like that, that, that so deeply impact talented, uh, all people's uh, career prospects and journey. I, I, can only, I can only imagine how crushing that was. And, and, and especially the reason, the lack of reasoning behind it just is crazy. And if I'd gotten Jiggle, then he would have made me wrong for that because he would have accused me of not being a straight person or whatever. I mean, it was just like he was just cruising for something. Mm. Well, I want to move. Uh, so there's lots of books and, and other creative outlets, documentaries that you've created. And I want to talk about one in particular that hasn't been released just yet. And it's called Biting the Hands That Squeeze Us. And uh, talk about a title that you know, really brings you in. Um, so tell us, if you would, a couple of maybe a key takeaways. First off, when do you think it will be? Tell, tell us the story about getting it released first, maybe. Okay, well, there is a, um, a saying, and I don't know who started it. Maybe Stephen King. I'm not sure. But it's kill your darlings, which means people, writers especially, can get so attached to the way they wrote something or titles or whatever. And I started writing this, oh, three years ago. And it was going to be a collection of anecdotes about what happened to me as a woman in entertainment and media, that anecdote being one of them. And because it wasn't violent, but it was violent toward my stature as a person in the entertainment industry. It was violent toward my economic st status to all of a sudden be let go because of that, do you know? So biting is a theme that goes throughout my creative career because biting is a really great boundary, but it doesn't necessarily damage somebody beyond belief. Mm. <laughs> you know, I am gonna get around to your, your question. Yeah, um, no, no, this is, uh, you know, this is for me, this is a foreign world uh, and I, I really love it. It's such a big blind spot. I mean, all of my content has been focused just on kind of one medium, which is podcasting, which right. you know, is very prevalent these days. So I'm, it's very intriguing. And I better listen for our listeners too, for so many of our listeners that also haven't, you know, been in the entertainment industry and, and to hear these experiences, even though there's some of the experiences that you're sharing are, are disappointing uh, to, to hear, that, that that goes on with the territory but it's it's intriguing to hear someone uh in the inner in, in the entertainment industry share their journey especially with given what you have gotten accomplished so right. um, kill your darlings uh, that, that's going to be um we might have found our title <laughs> who have we borrowed that from i love that well, so i love the title so much i was reluctant to have my book take a different tack and remind me to get back to biting and why it's yeah, so important. Sure. I am now taking a completely different tack and it's a memoir that is made up of letters to my late father and sharing my experiences. Mm. And because he, he was born in 1913 and he encouraged me every single step of the way. And I was a daddy's girl and he loved my guts he said you have more guts than a packing plant <laughs> and, <laughs> and he loved that but i was certainly not cut of the same cloth as the women in his generation and a lot of times he was like "Ooh, <laughs> really you're gonna do that and i said yes i'm gonna do that <laughs> so we he, need people like that we need people yeah. to constantly push that envelope and yes. and and because for all the fo followers that were come through whatever you know trail they're blazing so I, I love that yeah so now it's probably going to be biting the hands that squeezes is probably going to be the name of a chapter within that book and i'm going to call it probably dear snook that was his um, nickname because i googled dear daddy and ooh, really ucky Ugh. like motorcycle erotica 
Yeah. Oh, it was just like, oh, no, 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 no. So I don't. Dear Snook. <laughs> yes. Dear Snook, it is. Uh, <laughs> well, will they, will they, are they, so this book that's going to be comprised of, of letters written to your, your late father, Snook, are they, um, will they be all based on real letters or will it be a mix of, of letters you writ and wrote and some experiences maybe you didn't document? Well, yeah. I mean, for instance, I kind of, the letters I'm writing to him are writing it right now. It's like, I think of my dad every day and, you know, I pretend I'm carrying him around on my shoulder because I know how much he would enjoy my life. And, you know, if it weren't for my father and my mother, I wouldn't be having the life that I have. So the letters are, Dear Daddy, this weekend we're going to go to a Greek restaurant that you would love. So and then so that same letter goes, oh, I don't think I told you I was invited to give a sermon at the church uh, that my friend is a minister at because she needed a day off. So I gave the sermon this last um, this last Sunday, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. And then I then I uh, have the sermon. Mm. So the sermon is introduced kind of by the letter to my father. I don't know if that makes sense. But. I love it. I, I think. And look, you're the expert here. But when I hear as you describe that, it gives you so much leeway artistically and creatively to, to share all all sorts of experiences that I bet Snook would really <laughs> really appreciate. Just in a little bit, I know. So I, yeah. I love it. So I, I'm looking forward to that, and and uh, we'll have to have you back on when you when you publish it and 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 share some of those uh, letters. So oh, I wanted to get back to biting. I'm yeah, sorry. please. Yeah. Okay. So you know, I teach self defense, and I I'm. Well, before you move forward, when you when you say that, because I'm glad you brought that up, are you talking about in the sense of uh, you know I, I took a Zen Shotokai, former karate, as a kid. Uh-huh. Uh, is that the type of self defense we're talking about, based on? you know, hand to hand, you know, physical self-defense. I, I teach hand to hand combat. Yes. Okay. But not based on any of the martial arts, because this is something else a lot of people don't think about. And that is almost all the martial arts were created by men for men and men's mm. circumstances and men's bodies. Mm. And the people who attack women and kids are not honorable people. They don't follow any particular protocols or rules of martial arts. They sneak up on you. They attack you from the back. They are completely dishonorable people. Now, that said, I encourage people to take martial arts, but that's not what we teach. We teach dirty street fighting and because the people who attack us are dirty street people mm. and often they there's somebody we live with <laughs> it's not that i'm casting aspersions on street people it's that there's no honor among people who attack people that they think can't fight back right they're, they're, they're looking to probably take any any advantage to do whatever um, you know whatever their objective is so Absolutely. all right so you're teaching self-defense and I, I love that that was a blind spot for me i didn't, didn't even stop to think about how you know the martial arts you know what point of view what perspective that they they were uh, derived from so tell us um it, it, you're going to connect i think self-defense with biting the hands that squeezes well yes and so when i teach self-defense i teach with lived experience i've been assaulted i know what it's like to be attacked I know what it's like to be walking around in a woman's body in this world and uh, constantly having to deal with, it doesn't happen now that I'm older, but when I was younger, uh, of groping and whistling and making sounds. And it was like walking in a world that most of my men friends had no clue about because it didn't happen to them. So if it didn't happen to them, it must not happen. Well, you know, those guys that were doing that, they didn't do it in front of nice men. And um, so one of the things I teach is that, look, if you're walking down the street and you happen upon a dog that's growling and snarling and you see the hackles are up on their the back of their necks, what do you do? Well, you back away, <laughs> you cross the street, you avoid them, you listen to them, but what don't you do? You don't check to see if it's a male or a female. Mm. And then go, oh, well, that's just a girl dog. I'm going to go in there and pet it. No, you don't. <laughs> you do not. Because that that female dog is just as potentially dangerous as the male. But we've we've gendered danger to such a point that the 
people that attack women assume that there will be no consequences from that female. And we've trained females to be so afraid of threatening males that they assume there's nothing they can do. So we've really objectified men and we've objectified women because the truth is men are just people. <laughs> They're just people. Sure. <laughs> just going back to your point about presidents. Hey, they're just people, you know, they're, they're, they're not on a platform. They, they, uh, you know, put their clothes on the same way that anyone else puts their clothes on. That's so, right, right. Excellent point. Yeah. So, you know, the action movies, as much as I enjoy a good action movie as anyone else, um, they have solidified the danger that men pose to such a degree that it's mythical. We assume that men are cyborgs or that they can take a fire extinguisher to the head and get right back up i mean and the action movies escalate so the level of violence escalates mm. and it just looks like boy I, I, there's no way that i could defend myself and we it's not even like those things are thought about right uh, we, sure. we accept them even though we at some intellectual level we go oh that's choreographed that's not real but the impact of it sits at a different place than our intellect right so. especially if you when you see it time and time and time again it's that it, it's that uh subconscious reinforcement which can be so dangerous when uh, i would assume i've never been the victim of a of an assault but you know if, if if instantly to your point you don't believe in your ability to fight back and to stave off the attack you know uh, options and outcomes will be limited and that, that's probably a pretty dangerous aspect so yeah, absolutely and to your you know i'm on your website now which beauty, one <laughs> uh, <I know. laughs> beautybitesbeast.com yes, yes uh -huh. and i've got you know speaking of uh assault i see your factoid you've got here the world health organization conservatively estimates that one in three women worldwide have experienced gender-based violence in their lifetimes Yep. And people in the development world know that is a very low estimate. Mm -hmm. Holy cow. I, that, um, you know, I, I've just shared with you. I, I'm, you know, I'm however many, we don't date ourselves here. My partner, Greg White says nothing over, over two decades is, is our rule of thumb. But, you know, t for me to have gone through it my entire life without, you know, having been assaulted to hear that one in three number globally, you know, it, it instantly brings such a, um, a far more important element to what you're doing in, in, in the self-defense training. So, yeah, we don't talk about it. Women don't share with each other necessarily about it. Probably not. Now I grew up in a family with three daughters. I'm the youngest one. My eldest sister just passed away this past year and um, all three of us have been assaulted. So that's three for three. And I didn't know about my sister's assault until two years ago when she, here I am, this is my field, is violence prevention. She didn't really tell me until two years ago. Man. And it was her accountant, her accountant. <laughs> wow. Her accountant, she came in for a tax uh, meeting and he said, well, if you give me oral sex, I will uh, refrain from reporting you to the IRS. And she said, for what? She, he says, nothing. I'll just make something up. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then, and then she was so scared of him. She did. And she was so ashamed of herself. And I said, the shame goes to that guy. What, what were you going to do? <laughs> right. Unbelievable. You know, so let's all of this that you're sharing, I, I think, I know you're involved in a lot of boards and, and uh, leadership teams and through a lot of your, your volunteer leadership. But, you know, the one that the, where we met the National Women's History Alliance, NWHA, you know, it adds to the mission, the, the criticality of the mission that the NWA, NWHA has. So if you could shed a little bit of light on the organization and, and, and its purpose and your involvement. Well, it was started by Molly McGregor, this sweet woman, who was a history teacher. And in 1980, she was teaching a regular history course. And a young man in her class said, what's, what's women's liberation? What's that? And she said, well, let me see if I can find something that you can read and uh, about it historically. And she had a library full of books at home. She went and looked, then she looked in the school library. She could find one paragraph 
one paragraph after after all these resources that talked about women uh, being given the vote. Wow. So wait a second. So if aliens landed and looked through our history books, it's as if women never existed. And it's as if Native Americans never existed. And the people that are MIA existed and not only accomplished survival, but accomplished inventions and all sorts of creative things and just, you know, an astonishing amount of uh, history that has been ignored. And, you know, we didn't even notice that we were missing. That's the part that blows my mind. How come I didn't notice we were so missing? Well, if how, here's an existential question. How do you know that something's missing if it's missing? True. You don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So she started jumping into it and delving into it. And then eventually she got other people to participate with her. And that was in Santa Rosa, California. And this and, is Molly, right? This is the founder Molly. of uh, the NWA. National Women's History Alliance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then she got together with a bunch of uh, sisters, as it turned out, um, and petitioned Congress to make the month of March Women's History Month. And that was in 1987. It took seven years to do that, but we did it. I wasn't involved yet. And, you know, so we are alive and doing what we do because there's such a gap. And our store provides curriculum and uh, balloons and fun stuff for kids, boys too. Boys need to know women's history right? because they're raised to think that we're not of much consequence. And that's not their fault, you know? And it was, there, there was a time, for instance, my father, he loved Eleanor Roosevelt and he loved Amelia Earhart. And he looked up to women as something other than just sex objects. He followed Amelia Earhart's journeys and the the whole country cared about what happened when right. she went when she went missing i mean little boys too and so the sexualization of women has damaged our esteem in the eyes of the public in my humble opinion but to have women valued only for their jiggle <laughs> does a disservice to not only them but to boys and men and so and here is a heartbreaking story about amelia Earhart. There were not a lot of ham radio operators that were girls. They were discouraged right. from staying away from things like that. And a little girl got an SOS from what was Amelia Earhart's plane. And she called the, I guess it was the, oh, what's the call? What was the, the aviator, um, the FAA. Yes, yes. Or whatever it was called at the time and said, I've gotten an SOS and I believe it's Ms. Er Mrs. Uh, uh, Putnam's airplane because that was she was married to George Putnam, Putnam and mm. they ignored it because it was a girl. Wow, unbelievable! And and as we all know, to this day, you know we haven't we haven't really really found out with with you know overwhelming scientific proof exactly what took place. It is a fascinating fascinating individual, uh, Amelia Earhart, and the story only adds to the intrigue. But gosh, talk about the bravery! to jump into the aircraft solo or just with with a, a co-pilot and do the, do the things she's she did. Oh, Fred New Fred Noonan was her navigator and a right. drunk. That's so, right. Yeah. Gee, getting on a plane with a co drunk navigator. What could happen? <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, that is a good point and and I shouldn't have said co-pilot. Well, going back to the challenge you illustrated, it it is frustrating. So what do we you know, beyond supporting, getting involved, and, and by the way, to our listeners, the NWHA is a wonderful site beyond what Ellen here has shared. It's a great site. If you, if you like research and you like milestones, you know, you don't get enough of what they cover on this site elsewhere, and that's a shame. But y'all check that out in, let's say, nationalwomenshistoryalliance.org is the URL. And we'll include that in the show notes. But Ellen, go, go back to, um, we're going to move forward here in a minute. We're going to talk about other inspiring women that you've really enjoyed throughout business history. But what can, if you're speaking right now, you know, we, we've got a, a, our community is, is a business uh, one, right? Community uh, business leaders, organizational leaders. If you had their captive audience for just a, you know, a couple of minutes, which is, is more than what, what we get here in the goldfish era, right? Seven seconds and the folks are gone. 
how could, what would your advice be if they really want to enable opportunities for all and really help create more inclusive talent pipelines into all industries? What advice would you share? Well, it's two pronged. One prong is to wake up men to what they could possibly be missing because it's not just women there for women's sake. Two is to wake up women that they don't have to be perfect to fit into a culture. Women are so afraid of failing and looking stupid that they don't allow themselves to go for it. And men don't understand that women bring something special to the table. If they're allowed, if they create a safe enough space without sexual harassment, without, you know, bullying, that, okay, I'm gonna give you two anecdotes. Everybody knows who Ben Franklin was. Ben Franklin was aware of the impact of the Iroquois nation when they were, the founding fathers were putting together the constitution. And he understood that the Iroquois, their real name is Haudenosaunee, by the way. They didn't call themselves the Iroquois. That was the French name for the, the extensive nation. It was a confederation of six or seven tribes in northern New York and uh, in the cor- south, south corner of Canada. And they had had a working democracy for a thousand wow. years. 1,000 years of a very successful democracy. Why? Because the clan mothers noticed that they were decimating each other. The nations were fighting so much that the women said, cut it out. We have got to come together and create a way to govern ourselves that we're not killing each other. Come on. So they developed a democracy where women had as much of a say in how things go as the men did. And Ben Franklin knew about their democracy. He had Iroquois elders come to Philadelphia to advise the founding fathers on creating a democracy. The chiefs walked in, looked around, and the first thing they said was, where are the women? Where are the women? So that's been my uh, mantra too. And I will invite men business owners, business Uh, partners to adopt that mantra and ask, where are the women? Where are they? I love that. I love, you know, (laughs) that's the first time I've ever heard that story Uh, and the story is a good one, but, but the, um, the power of that question is even better. So, um, I I really appreciate you sharing that, but you you said you had one mother, you had two anecdotes. Uh, What was it? Well, so we were asking, Oh, 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 um, well it has to do with women women's fear and this is these are all generalizations but women's fear of failure i was a adjunct um, faculty member at cal state la and i had huge classes and i would pose a question and inevitably the young men would raise their hands and the young women did not and so i said i'm gonna stand here until the women raise their hands and I'm not going to do anything until women raise their hands. So they're kind of like, and I said, what, what your brothers have that you don't have is they are not afraid that they're going to represent all men if they answer incorrectly. And they are not afraid to fail on behalf of themselves or their brothers. They never have to deal with, oh, gee, if I look stupid, it's going to make all men look stupid. <laughs> and, you know, that is a huge right. burden. Like the last woman we had didn't work out. It's like, and it's unconscious. It's it's not like it's even in people's minds, but it's there nonetheless. And and such a, um, it's unconscious a bull, right? That uh, those conversations that you've shared and the excuses and, and the, the lack of any kind of common sense or rationale or an, an injustice behind it it truly is unconsciousable. And that's, that's the important, you know, because of that, you, you know, and what I've learned uh, just from my personal journey is, you know, based on where, you know, where, you know, you grew up in South and North Dakota, right? And so what was taking place there is what you knew, right? Well, we all come up in different different spots and, and, and we have different blind spots, right? And I think one of the cha- great challenges we have 
have had, continue to have, will continue to have, sadly, is is ensuring that everyone understands and they know that they have a blind spot. And in that blind spot is when these where these injustices continue to thrive because it 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 it, and it not encourages, but it it creates inaction because it takes away from the credibility of of many other people's experiences and 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 unfair scenarios, conversations, injustices, the experiences you've shared, all of that thrives partially because of the blind spot that we all that we all have to, to some some degree or, or greater degrees in some cases. So this conversation here uh, helps attack and, and, and create more awareness and attack these blind spots, which is so important. So thank you very much for sharing thus far your journey and, and those some of those moments where it's just un, unbelievable. And if, if you know, you, you start to question reality, Ellen, you start to question reality and sanity. What are we doing, you know? Oh, I know <laughs> the the anecdote I was trying mm. to remember. Women in the 70s started to invade heretofore male-dominated mm. spaces. And, and one of those spaces they invaded was archaeology. There were no women out on digs, or if there were, they were always very rare. And when you're the only one in a group of people, it's not easy to break through cultural bias. However, on this one dig, they uncovered a, a deer antler that had 28 slashes on it. And the male that uncovered it lifts it up and he goes, wow, this must have been a great season. They probably bagged 28 deer in this you know, one hunting exposition. And the woman goes, uh, excuse me, I think that's a woman keeping track of her menstrual cycle. Wow, but different perspective. <laughs> And, you know, so who invented calendars, I wonder? <laughs> you know, and I have writing students who assume that the paintings in the caves were by men. Well, based on what? Were you there? Why, why couldn't it have been women? Why couldn't it have been anybody? You know, it's like, you don't know, but we have this blind spot, all of right. us, men and women, that it must have been men if it was important. Right. And... That is just not it's, so. It's, it's a, a dangerous way to view the world. It's, it's but but it is, it is a blind spot, and and you know to some degree your your lack of knowledge. I mean, you know, it, the onus is on each of us to deter, you know, find that blind spot, but then to do something about it. You know, and that's where we've as I was talking to someone the other day, Ellen, I have resigned myself to no more Facebook and LinkedIn social media. Duke it out, right? If you don't believe in, in unconscious bias, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just going to continue to to spotlight experiences. And, and hopefully folks have epiphanies that I've been fortunate to really be taught, you know, because it's a blind spot for a reason because it doesn't come to you naturally. Right. But nevertheless, let's talk about on a different note. And I love these anecdotes, by the way. I think I think, Ellen, you could write up a, 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 a wide variety of different books that uh, Let's talk about other inspir inspiring leaders when it comes to uh, women in, in business history or, or any kind of history. Who else comes to mind that, that you know, really um, you love to read about, that you're inspired by, that maybe even you modeled some of your uh, pioneering uh, spirits after? Well, one of my favorite women in history that really got buried by other women. By the way, I don't think men are bad. I don't think women are good. I don't, I think we're all people. and. We are human beings first, and our gender, you know, is a very, very, very strong, strong factor of it. But we're all right. people, so that's where I come from, and our blind spots are equal. Yeah, it, <laughs> and it's it's not a personal right. flaw. Everybody has them. No. <laughs> Does it matter? That's right. Um, you, whatever walk of life, everyone has. It. And, and you know, I think I think the important thing, if I and just not your words, my words, what I have learned from folks that really have moved the needle the most in, in, in different educational and, and eureka moments is folks that, that they're not, not criminalizing. No one is the enemy, right? And they're, and they're not That's attacking right. men because they know, as you, as you said it a little while ago, men have to be part of the solution that create opportunities for all and to address in a meaningful, in a positive way, the injustices that are part of society. Right. So I appreciate right. where you come from. Thanks for that clarification. 
Yeah, and it's a yeah, demonizing each other is not going to get us right. anywhere. Has it worked so far? No, not so much. So, a woman named Matilda Joslyn Gage. Oh my word. We are impacted by her today because her son-in-law was L. Frank Baum, yeah. the author of The Wizard of Oz. And it's not an accident that the protagonist of one of the most important movies in all our lives was a little girl because Matilda Joslyn Gage impacted L. Frank Baum. Her daughter was married to him and they used to have very, very long conversations about gender and the role of women and men and all that. And you'll see when you watch Beauty Bites Beast, my documentary, I feature The Wizard of Oz because what does Dorothy do? She slaps the cowardly lion on the nose, boop, and he goes, what did you do that for? And she, he jumped out at her and to scare right. her, and she defended herself with a, with a non-lethal physical action, and, you know, I forget what she says to him, but uh, we've, we've grown up right. with that, and, and that, that's what I'm teaching women to be able to Love do. Love that. Is to set a boundary. And we have an example of that where she didn't want to hurt him permanently or anything like that, but she wanted to let him know that was not okay. She delivered a, an immediate consequence, right? So Matilda Joslyn Gage, here's another thing she did. In the commemoration of the Statue of Liberty, no, no women were invited for the commemoration. And here's this giant woman in the harbor of New York City, no women were invited. There may have been one or two wives of dignitaries, but that I'm was I'm laughing it. to keep from crying, uh, by the way. It just, it, it is unbelievable. Yeah. So what Matilda did is that she hired a cattle freight boat because that was the only boat she could find that was available because a lot of people were sailing around Liberty Island to see this big deal. And she, <laughs> she got a cattle boat. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's got cattle crap all over it and these these ladies with their weird shoes and corsets and everything and they're carrying signs, votes for women. <laughs> and they had they had horns and I mean the, the I just I just love I love the chutzpah and the the willingness to make yes. a scene that was nonviolent and Gandhi Got his ideas about nonviolent social change from watching women in the United States and in mm. England. And Gandhi and Martin Luther King stand on the shoulders of mm. women, and they don't—they don't get mentioned much. That's a good point. You know, you know uh, over the last weekend, I think it was, uh, my wife and I watched uh, my wife Amanda and I watched uh, the National Geographic series called uh, Genius Aretha, and it's all about Aretha Franklin, and. I got I, 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 we wrapped that series. We, we, we binged watched it because it was really that good. All the music that was incorporated naturally and the acting and, and, but more importantly, the story and the history and, and all that I didn't know that she had to fight through from, a, from childhood is just a, um, the latest wonderful piece of, of, of entertainment, but with purpose that really reaches out and, and, and inform, grabs you, but really informs, uh, you know, these journeys, these incredible journeys that these these legendary figures come through, and you know, even some of the le non legendary. Because to your point, as you've alluded a couple of times, so many figures, historical figures, many women that that made a big impact, they aren't legendary because they weren't recognized, they weren't included, and they weren't you know documented. So that's a huge challenge as well, and, and one that I'm really glad to see the N NWHA capture so even even the simple things like the birthdays of some of the historical figures you know that that um you may have not learned about you and amanda will love tina the doc the hbo documentary about tina turner oh my <laughs> word <gasps> so good oh my goodness my husband and i watched that we'll the other tackle night that next. my husband and i are very very close and he's my he's my partner in so many things and he encourages me he i had a i had a great dad and therefore i picked really great men i've never had jerk men in my personal life <laughs> well as as our regular co-host here at at the uh uh this week in business history kelly barner 
likes to say, life's too short for jerks. No jerks allowed. So I'm with you. Men, women, doesn't matter. No, so There are plenty of jerk women, too. And your husband's name? Ken, Ken Gruberman. Gruberman. All right. Well, shout out to Ken. Big uh, Appreciate his yeah. his uh, partnership and role in this journey, this exciting journey of, of yours. And we're just, we're just scratching the surface here. Um, so, all right. So it is now let's go, let's go travel on a little, on a little time travel trip here. Let's say it's 21, 21, hundred years in the future. You know, we are living as we both know for the thousandth time, but it's so true. It is cliche, you know, extraordinary times, right? Very unique times on a number of different fronts. Who, who do you think when it, especially when it comes to, to, to women leaders and women innovators and pioneers and, and folks right there in the trenches, you know, fighting through to prevent some, you know, to, to ad- address some of the injustices, regardless of, of from what angle, who are we going to be talking about in a hundred years? Oh, I think we'll be talking about Greta Thunberg and Malala. They are on the cutting edge of young people, not just girls, but including girls in making a ruckus, making a scene and saying, you know what? This climate change thing, this keeping women in the dark thing does not work. Milala put her life on the line to teach girls to mm-hmm. read. And, you know, as backward as I think the United States is on, on uh, sexism and racism, we are not the worst in the world. We're not the best in the world either. But that the Taliban is active in keeping girls from getting educated uh, and See, I look at those girls and go, That's that might be the girl that cures cancer. That might be the girl that figures out how to replenish the the dying uh, fish right. stock in the ocean. That might you know, we don't know whose lives we're wasting. And Greta, wow, talk about t- walking her talk. Oh my god. And um, she she and her generation are going, Hey, hey, you know what, boomers? And I hate that word, but it's true. It's like, you know what? We're living into a future of chaos. All we can see right now is that with climate change being denied by a lot of people who I believe ought to know better and who kind of willy-nilly keep addicted to oil. I'm addicted to oil. I keep driving. I don't, I'm not walking. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, but um, it's true. It's true. So I think they'll be talking about girls like Malala and Greta. Love that. I love I love all you know, um, I, I say exactly what's on my mind and, and for the better or for worse. And I'll tell you, Ellen, this is a I enjoyed our pregame discussion, really enjoyed this discussion. There's so much we can't get to, but it's been a pleasure to get to know you better. And I'll tell you too, one of my favorite podcasts that we did here, um, you know, this week in business history is one of several under the supply chain now umbrella was focused on Rose Knox. And I would not have learned the story of Rose Knox, even though I, I stocked as a, as a grocery uh, stock person in my first job ever making four thirty four dollars and 35 cents an hour, the product that Knox Knox gelatin, right? Uh, everyone. I mean, if you've been in a grocery store, you've seen it. And if, certainly if you cook, Rose Knox, I stumbled across her story from the NWHA website. Never was taught about it. And it's such a powerful story. And, and I'm not going to dive into it extensively, but but two quick things. She, uh, her husband died very instantly uh, or very quickly and suddenly back in the 1910s. And he had a, they had built a successful business. And all of her friends at the time encouraged her, hey, women don't run businesses. This is like 1918, 1919, as I recall. And she said, she told them all, get basically get lost. We're going to do this. So she took the reins of the, the manufacturing operation, right? So that's really cool. But one of the first things she did when she took the reins is the company was forcing certain of its employees to come through the back door, right? And the very first thing she said she did is close that back door and said, look, we're a family, we're a team. Everyone's coming through that front door. And I would have never... I, I, I would have, wouldn't have come across that story, which is so much, and that's just tip of the iceberg, much like you. There's so much to that, that that would inspire and empower and that you can learn from and and, and share with others. And and really from the great information y'all published there, just, just on the, the free stuff that you don't even have to order, 
So y'all check out National, let's see, let me get the URL right, nationalwomenshistoryalliance.org. A lot of good stuff. And of course, that's how I met Ellen Snortland, which has been a great interview here on this week in business history. So let's make sure, Ellen, how can folks connect with you in particular? We've kind of shared the NWHA angle. How can folks check in on all the great projects you're leading? Well, go to my website, beautybitesbeast.com or my website, authorbitebybite.com. I, I if, you're, if you've been avoiding writing a book, I can help you get unstuck. And, um, you know, and to watch Beauty Bites Beast, I love that it saves lives. And you can get access to Beauty Bites Beast on my website, beautybitesbeast.com. And, you know, it's like, hey, life is too short <laughs> to be around jerks. <laughs> That's true. That is right. So let's teach each other how to handle jerks, okay? <laughs> and, and you know, encourage others and encourage them, you know, as you were saying earlier, not to quit. Laura Ciceri came on one of our live streams earlier, and, and she talked about her journey several decades back as she was going through engineering classes at, uh, I think it was the University of Tennessee, I think it was. Anyway, she's going through engineering, one of the few women in, in the in the student body. And she had one professor, uh, Ellen, she got a, uh, an, a D and he, in front of the whole class, he held the paper up her grade and said, this is why women should not be engineers. And, and she came this close to, to quitting. And, but she had some folks in her network that really helped encourage her not to quit. She's gone on to some huge things in industry and manufacturing and engineering and, and, and operations. But all that would have been would have never happened if she'd gave it, given into those doubts that we all have at different points in time. So I love your message. Uh, I love so many components of your message. We'll have to have you back. Uh, best of luck with the, the latest and greatest, the biting the hands that squeeze us, which will be a chapter of the new book called Dear Snort. Snook. Dear Snook. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Close. Dear Snook. I should have written that down. Well, all the best. Uh, Ellen Snorton. Snortland's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for spending time with us here today. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be with you. You're so present and so real. And uh, I love nerding out with you. <laughs> well, we'll do it again really soon. Thanks so much, Ellen. Thank you. All right. So to our listeners, gosh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. We, it, we ran a wide range of topics, but hey, that's nothing new for us here at This Week in Business History. Ellen is such a, a great, not only a, a, a great interview, but there's so much to learn from her journey. And, and, and I really appreciate how she's spotlighting that so other folks can attack that blind spot that we talked about. And hey, if you learn, if you take anything away from this conversation, embrace that question. Where's the women at that Ellen shared with us? So, hey, on behalf of our entire team here at This Week in Business History, I uh, hope this finds you well and you have a great week wherever you are. But most importantly, hey, do good, give forward, be the change, be like Ellen Snortland. And on that note, we'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.